Pastor Kevin Fisk, uh, as Brian and Elaine are on vacation in Indianapolis. So uh, we want to welcome him this morning. This morning, he'll be preaching from Psalm 25. Uh, that will be our reading this morning. So Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humbly his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, and to those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him who will he instruct in the ways that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offerings shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever towards the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with that violent hatred, they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh Lord, out of all his troubles. This is God's word. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here this morning as we worship you. We pray that we'll unite our hearts with all those around the world that are having services this morning, uh, that are preaching your word, and that are worshiping and praising you. We pray now this morning for our brother, Kevin, as he speaks to us from your word. We pray that you give him words of truth. We pray that our hearts and our minds will be open to what you have to say. We especially pray, Lord, that we'll take these words, use them in our lives, and spread them throughout our neighborhoods, our friends, and everywhere we go, Lord, just speaking your truth and speaking the gospel to others. We give this time to you, Lord, and we pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, Tom. Good morning to all of you. Uh, I hope you are warm and toasty in your cars this morning. Um, it is a joy and a privilege for me to have the opportunity to be back here at Gospel Life Church. I'm so thankful uh, to Pastor Brian for his invitation. And uh, I don't know if Tom mentioned this, uh, I presently serve as the Associate Pastor of Worship and Discipleship uh, at Faith Bible Church, which is really less, I think, than two miles 
uh, from where we are here today. Uh, but one of my primary responsibilities at that church is to uh, lead the music ministry. And I began to play uh, the, the acoustic guitar, I think it was my sophomore year in high school. And I just picked up the guitar and I started to strum. I really didn't know what I was doing. And I had to go to somebody who knew how to play guitar. And I'd ask them, you know, where do I put my fingers? And, and how do I strum through these strings? And, and uh, before I ever started to play the acoustic guitar, uh, I played the saxophone and I started playing that in fourth grade. And that whole process began by learning how to put your mouthpiece together. And then you take the mouthpiece and you put it on the neck and you take the neck and you put it on the saxophone. And um, there are all of these fundamentals to playing music. Uh, you have to start small in order to get to the point where you can actually play a song. And so once you put the saxophone together and once you understand how to hold the guitar, uh, you can finally strum a chord and then perhaps play a song. The same is true with sports. Uh, nobody just walks onto the basketball court or the baseball field and knows exactly what they're doing. You have to learn how to dribble the basketball. You have to learn how to hit the baseball and keep your eye on the ball. And no matter what it is, like I said, a sport, musical endeavor, there are these fundamentals that we must learn in order to play the sport well, to compete effectively, to play the song completely. And it would be quite silly to ever think if you were desiring to play a musical instrument or play a sport to pick up a guitar and you learn where to put your fingers on the neck to play a G chord and you strum through that chord or you put the saxophone together and you learn to play a concert B flat scale and then you say, I'm good. Don't really care to do anything more with this. I'm just going to hang the guitar up, put the saxophone away, and that's going to be it. Um, all of us whether we are playing a musical instrument or competing athletically, we learn the fundamentals in order to do well in the game, in order to perform well in the concert, whatever it might be. And the reality is there are parts or pieces of the Christian life that effectively work the same way. Many people have called them either the spiritual disciplines or the means of grace. And that is there are things that we use in the Christian life, in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness that allow us to draw near to Christ in a way that we then grow in godliness. As a matter of fact, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8 says this. Paul writes, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so when we think of these spiritual disciplines, and just to maybe think of a few of those off the top of our head this morning, uh, you might think of Bible study, prayer, which we'll talk about here in just a moment, um, solitude, thanksgiving, journaling, um, fasting. We could think of a whole list of those, and all of those are used by us in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness. And just to get a definition on the table, we might say this, the spiritual disciplines are the God-given means we are to use in the spirit-filled pursuit of godliness. And just as there would be little value in practicing the spiritual disciplines apart from the purpose that unites them, that is, 
godliness, we must also think that as we use these things, the Lord will use them to form us more in, more, pardon me, more like the image of Christ as we serve and follow him in our lives. So this morning, the discipline on the table is uh, the discipline of prayer. And there's a good likelihood that for many people here in this parking lot today, as we are gathered, um, prayer often, the pursuit of prayer, might be seen as something more grieving, tiresome, confusing, or even more boring than it has been a powerful gift of God's grace and an opportunity to speak personally with the God of the universe. For some people, it might be something quite powerful, something you enjoy, something you give yourself fully to. But no matter where you are on that spectrum this morning, I trust that our time together this morning in God's word will encourage you and encourage myself as well to grow in this area. So um, as Tom said just a moment ago, we are going to be in Psalm 25. And so while you're in your car or if you're watching via live stream, if you have the opportunity to get a Bible and get it open in front of you, I would encourage you to do that. I think there's something powerful about looking at the scriptures as we read them together. So if you would, please turn in your Bible to Psalm 25 this morning. And while you're turning there, I want to answer two quick questions as we begin looking at the spiritual discipline of prayer this morning. Number one, what exactly is prayer? And the second question is, why do we or why should we pray? So what exactly is prayer? And then why do we or why should we pray? Hopefully I don't get stung by that bee. Number one, what is prayer? To some, it's a required ritual. To others, it's profoundly pointless. To some, there are those who pray that they believe that as they pray, they are gaining some amount of favor with God by the time that they spend in prayer. And the reality is none of those viewpoints are correct. And so we must ask the question, what really is prayer? At its most basic level, it's communication with God. And to say that perhaps a bit more fully, prayer is the ability that I have to personally communicate with God, given to me as a gift through the finished work of Jesus, the Son of God, on my behalf. Let me say that just one more time. Prayer is the ability that I have, that you have, that we have to personally communicate with God given to me as a gift through the finished work of Jesus, the Son of God, on my behalf. Hebrews chapter 10 actually teaches us that for those who have placed their complete trust in Jesus, having been made clean by his blood, we may now with confidence draw near to God's throne to find mercy and grace to help in our time of need. It's our ability to individually and corporately uh, pray and be heard by God. This is an unbelievable gift of grace, which has been graciously given to us through the finished work of Christ. And so this morning, for some, the topic of prayer might seem quite elementary. And I would hope that we would just pause for a second and not take for granted what prayer actually is. 
that even here in a parking lot in Joliet, Illinois, because of what Jesus has done to reconcile us to the Father, you have the ability to speak to God and be heard by him. Think about that. The God who spoke and the universe came into being. You can in your car or when you go home, in your kitchen, or as you lay your head on your pillow tonight, as you're falling asleep because of what Christ has done, his blood covering you and reconciling you to the Father, you can speak to God and be heard by him. That's an incredible gift of grace. And if that isn't enough to move our hearts to pray, I've written these three things down to answer the question, why do we or why should we pray? So prayer, what is prayer? At its base level, it's communication with God. The second question, why do we or why should we pray? Number one, Jesus expects us to pray. I'm gonna rifle through some scriptures here and if you can write them down, that's fine. But if it's too quick, you can go back and get them later. Number one, Jesus expects us to pray. Matthew 5, 44, Jesus commands us to pray for those who persecute you. Matthew 6, 6, Jesus says, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. Luke 18, 1 tells us that when he told them a parable to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. John 16, 24, Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Why do we or why should we pray? Jesus expects us to pray. The second thing, Jesus sets the example of a praying life. Jesus sets the example of a praying life. Matthew 14, 23, the scripture tells us that Jesus sought time alone to pray. In Mark 1, 35, the scripture tells us that Jesus rose early in the morning to pray. Luke 6, 12 tells us that Jesus spent entire nights in prayer. And Luke 22, 41 through 42 tells us that Jesus prepared for suffering in his life through prayer. So if we want to be more like Jesus, regular intentional prayer must be a part of our lives. Why do we or why should we pray? Jesus expects us to pray. Jesus sets the example of a praying life. And this third thing, God's word commands his people to pray. God's word commands his people to pray. Jeremiah 33, three says, call to me and I will answer you and will tell you great and hidden things that you have not known. Colossians 4, two tells us that we are to devote ourselves to prayer. First Thessalonians 5.17 commands us to pray without ceasing. Prayer is an act of obedience to God. He is personal and he longs to communicate with his children. So truthfully, all of us in this place this morning have room to grow in this area, myself included. But in desiring to grow as God's people who pray, we're going to look at several elements that characterize David's prayer in Psalm 25. And I trust that as we look at God's word this morning, we will grow in this spiritual discipline of prayer. And just a heads up, as we jump into Psalm 25 this morning, I will not be reading from every verse. Um, sometimes that is uh, the way that I preach through a passage. It's looking at every verse, every word. This morning, we're going to pick parts of Psalm 25. And so if I do skip over 
a part of Psalm 25. Don't worry, um, I didn't miss anything there. Um, we're going to pick and choose from Psalm 25 as we pursue this topic this morning. But if you would, look with me at Psalm 25, beginning in verse 1. David writes this, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame and let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We're gonna begin with this first element of prayer this morning, and that is this, adoration. Adoration. If you're taking notes, you can write down that word. Number one, adoration. Look with me again at verse one, and that is where we find this first element. David writes, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And you might be looking at the text and thinking, I don't really see adoration there. See David addressing God, but I, I don't know if I see adoration clearly in that verse. And I would say this, when David uses the name, the personal name of God, and you see it there in verse one, when Lord in your Bible is in all caps, capital L-O-R-D, that is a signal to you and to me that a very specific Hebrew word is being translated at that point, and that is the name Yahweh. That is God's personal name. But more on that in a second. The very fact that David addresses the Lord as Yahweh is filled with adoration. But let us be clear first about what adoration is. Adoration means to give regard to, to declare one's love for, to proclaim the greatness of the person addressed. All of us know what it is to adore something or someone. And it's true, and often my wife and I, we share this adoration for one another in ways that sometimes miss, but the truth is I adore my wife. I give regard to her. I want to serve her, and I often tell her that I love her. She, for me, is the most beautiful person that I know inside and out. I adore her. And so when David addresses the Lord as Lord, as Yahweh, he is approaching the Lord with a deep sense of adoration. And as I said a moment ago, the name Yahweh carries with it a huge weight of meaning that is filled with adoration. It conveys the notion that God is God. And that's not a mere redundancy. That is a declaration of power. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the Lord. His name also carries with it the meaning that it is he who remembers the promises that he has made. He is a God of judgment and deliverance. He is a God who is transcendent. That is, he exists apart from and is not subject to the material universe, but he is also a God who is imminent. That is, at the same time, Yahweh is with us. The name Yahweh conveys with it the meaning that God is a God who does not change. He is a God who is unique and holy. He is a God who is gracious and merciful, who relents from anger and responds favorably to the authentic prayer and repentance of his people. 
all of that is wrapped up in the name Yahweh. And David goes no further until he has recognized and adored the one who he is addressing. And I know in my own life at times, I'm so focused on what I need that I don't first come into God's presence with a heart of adoration. I don't take the time to pause and come into God's presence with a spirit of reverence. I rather just selfishly rush in with my list of wants or things that I've convinced myself that I need. And truthfully, we live in a world that, that feeds that inside of us. If we pull up to a drive-up window to order something and the person doesn't respond immediately, you're thinking, does this thing work? Are they there? Like, what's going on? If I touch my phone or I swipe and it doesn't respond to me right away, I think something's wrong with this. It doesn't work. It's broken. If I type in a website in the URL bar and I click enter and that doesn't load quickly enough, what's going on? What's wrong with this? Our world is filled with instant gratification, fulfilling the things that we think we need almost instantaneously. And so at times it's a challenge to slow down, to pause, to reflect, and to consider the one into whose presence we are coming. It's interesting to note, though, that the overwhelming pattern of prayer in Scripture begins with adoration. The overwhelming pattern of prayer in Scripture begins with adoration. And get this, it begins with adoration no matter how pressing the need. Did you hear that? The overwhelming pattern of prayer in Scripture begins with adoration, no matter how pressing the need. Daniel in Daniel 9, 5 through 19, after a vision that literally makes him sick, he begins his prayer with adoration. Jeremiah in Jeremiah 32, after being told by God to buy a seemingly useless piece of land, begins his prayer with adoration. Jesus in John 17, about to face his crucifixion, begins in adoration by focusing on the glory of the Father. When we begin our prayers by pausing to reflect on the greatness of the God whom we are about to address and declare the truth of who he is, not only does this fill our hearts with faith in God's ability to answer our prayers, but it also puts the cares that we are bringing before his throne into perspective. Pausing to reflect on the nature and character of God focuses our hearts and fills our hearts with the power of God and his ability to answer prayer. And it puts those cares that we are bringing before his throne into perspective. David here in Psalm 25 acknowledges the Lord for who he is. He begins with a spirit of adoration, but moving forward into verses six and seven, David focuses on what will be our second element this morning, and that is this, it's confession. Confession. Look with me in verses six and seven. David writes, remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. 
according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. David begins his confession in verse 6 by calling on God's grace, mercy, and love, his faithfulness, that he might be forgiven of the sins that he's committed. Now, it might seem weird to begin verse 6 with the word remember. Why on earth would we need to ask God to remember anything as though he's forgotten it or overlooked it? Perhaps you're familiar with the song, Your Grace is Enough. There's a pre-chorus in that, uh, that song. It says, remember your people, remember your children, remember your promise, O God. Why do we need to ask God to remember anything? The amazing thing about the character, about the person of God, is that God knows everything, past, present, and future, in one simple act. He's not like we are in that respect. As we wind down at the end of the day, we can reflect on the things that have happened and there might be elements of the day that we've forgotten that perhaps later on they come back to us and we're like, oh yeah, I remember that. Or it takes time to recall things that maybe are further in the past. Perhaps we've even forgotten those things. God is not like that. God knows all there is to know, past, present, and future in one simple act. And so what is David doing here in verse six by saying, remember your mercy, O Lord. In the Old Testament, that word remember carries with it the idea that something would be noted by God in order for him to take action. He knows, David knows, that it's only by God's grace or this unearned favor that David has with the Lord because of the coming Messiah that he'll be accepted by God and that his own efforts will never get him anywhere. Then in verse seven, David plainly confesses that he is a sinner and he asks God not to take action against him in that regard, but rather to forgive him of his sins out of God's infinite goodness and faithfulness. You see, David has examined his own life and he's well aware that he has done things that have missed the mark of what God has desired and commanded him to do. He knows that because of that, he is worthy of God's wrath, judgment, and condemnation. And he knows that only God can provide forgiveness and atonement for his sin. In the New Testament, the word for confess is the word homologeo. That word in the New Testament literally means to say the same. So the truth is when we actually confess our sins, it's more than just saying, oops, sorry, God, I, I, I did that. Shouldn't have done that. I remember I probably didn't tell the, the whole truth. I told part of the truth when I said that. And I, yeah, I, I, I forgive me, please. Um, no, that's not probably what I should have been doing or where I should have been or what I should have been thinking or sorry and your grace goes further than my sin. So please, please forgive me for doing that. That is not a biblical understanding of confession. Confession according to the scriptures means that we as God's people are literally saying the same thing. That's what that word homologeo means. We are literally saying the same thing about our sin that God says. By God's grace, it's getting to the place 
where you and I from our heart can say that the sin that we've committed, no matter how seemingly big or small, is abominable in the sight of God. It's realizing that I have made a choice to be my own God in that moment, feeling that I know better for me than God does. It's ultimately an offense against the holy and righteous creator God. It's realizing that I have broken his law and deserve his just and holy wrath, that I deserve condemnation, that I deserve death. That is wrapped up in a biblical understanding of confession. You might be sitting in your car this morning thinking, Kevin, relax, man. I know that sin is serious, but is it really worth getting that worked up over? Is it really that big of a deal? Does it really affect or offend God that much? Because of my sin, because of your sin, listen to what our guilt did to God's only precious, spotless, sinless, innocent son. Listen to the words of Isaiah 53 this morning. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. Jesus, because of my sin, took upon himself the punishment that I deserve in my place. And in all reality, the way that we view sin is truly a gospel issue. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote this, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet, Watson said. If we think of sin as merely a horizontal problem, we may begin to think that our sin is small and our virtue sizable. It leads us to think that we're just about good enough for heaven and not quite bad enough for hell. Perhaps if you were to go from here today, and I know it's not as easily done as it once was, but if you were to be at a place where there were multiple people at one point gathered together, and you were to just ask random people, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? One of the most common answers that you will receive in response to that question is, well, I'm a pretty good person. And I think it would be an awful thing of God to send me to hell when I've tried really hard my entire life to be good. Perhaps even right now, you can think of one or five or 20 people that are a little bit worse than you are. You know, they've done things just a little bit more terrible than you've done or that I've done. But you see, the reality is the categories of Scripture are not good and bad. The categories of Scripture are guilty and not guilty. And one, even the tiniest infraction of God's law, means that we are guilty of treason against the holy creator God of the universe. And we are under his just wrath 
and condemnation for that infraction. Sin and the way we view sin is truly a gospel issue. Sin ultimately is primarily vertical. And what do I mean by that? It is ultimately God himself who we have sinned against. And realizing that reveals to us the catastrophic seriousness of sin. The more bitter our sin becomes to us, the sweeter the good news of Jesus. If we are going to share the gospel with people, if you're going to speak that message to others, we must be clear about the heinous nature of sin and the penalty that comes with it. If we are not, people will not understand, nor will they see their immense need for the grace of God that has been extended to them in Christ Jesus. The good news of the scripture is found in 1 John 1, 9, where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is not one person who is too far from that total cleansing if they would cling to Christ with everything that they are. If you this morning have not put your faith and trust in Christ and in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and life with God, you can believe on him this morning. Eternal life is not found in getting out of your car and walking up here or filling out a card or raising a hand or making eye contact with me as we pray. All of your sin and all of your guilt can be washed away by the finished work of Christ if you believe in him. Turn from your sin. We'll get to that in a moment. And believe on the name of the Lord Jesus. And the scripture says you will be saved. Have you believed in him? Have you said the same thing about your sin that God says about your sin? David confesses here in Psalm 25 that he is a great sinner. And realizing that God is a great savior, it leads him back into adoration in verses 8 through 10. Showing the unscripted, raw, authentic nature of David's time before the Lord. Look with me at verses 8 through 10 in Psalm 25. Recognizing God's mercy and his grace, David says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right, and he teaches the humble in his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. David adores the Lord once more. I think that's a good word for us as well. Thomas Murray McShane said, for every uh, look I take at myself, I should take 10 looks at the Savior. Pardon me, Robert Murray McShane. For every look I take at myself, I should look at Christ 10 times. And the reality is when we consider the weight of our sin and the magnitude of our sin, it can be discouraging. But remember the grace and mercy of God and the goodness of God toward us in Christ Jesus. And it will lead us back to a place of adoration as it does for David here. But let's move forward to this third element of the spiritual discipline of prayer this morning. And that is this, it's repentance. Repentance. Look with me in verses 11 through 15. 
David writes, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my sin, pardon my sin, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being. His offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. For he will pluck my feet out of the net. It's clear from verses 11 and verse 15. That the idea of repentance carries with it this idea of direction. And the reality is for every single person who is pursuing godliness in the Christian life, there are one of two directions. We are either moving toward Christ in obedience or we are moving away from him. There really is no middle ground. David here speaks the language of direction. You can look with me specifically in verse 15. David says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. Repentance, the word itself literally means to turn, to turn from sin. And it also means to have a change of mind. It's, it's like doing a 180 in life. Whatever it is, whatever the sin is that you or I have given ourselves over to. And recognize that if you are in Christ, Jesus himself broke the power he broke the power of Satan's sin and death through his finished work, meaning that anytime I choose to sin, I am choosing to sin. I cannot point the finger at anyone else and lay the blame. Remember, that goes all the way back to the garden. After Adam and Eve chose to take the fruit and eat of it, even though the word of the Lord was clear to them, God comes to them and he says, what have you done? And immediately, it's point the finger. The woman you gave me, she made me do it. The snake, it was the serpent. Recognizing the reality of sin in our life and the reality that Jesus has broken the power of Satan, sin, and death. Anytime that I choose to sin, I have chosen to sin. And by God's grace, and through the power of his spirit working in me, I can choose to get up and turn from that sin and turn toward the Lord. As David says there in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord. We are either moving toward the Lord or moving away from him. And when we repent, we are saying, I no longer want this sin. I don't desire it anymore. God, change my mind. I'm getting up and I'm turning. I'm making an about face and moving toward you and moving away from that sin. And it's so important as we pursue godliness in the Christian life to both say the same thing about our sin and then recognizing when we have sinned to get up to turn, to change our mind and move forward by God's grace. A verse of encouragement in that respect this morning is found in Acts 3, 19 and 20. Acts 3, 19 and 20 says, Repent, therefore, and here's the language again, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Perhaps this morning, if your Christian life has seemed a bit 
like an old mild can of salsa? Is it because there's sin that has not yet been confessed? Is there sin that has not yet been turned from? Is there sin that has been kept in darkness? Listen, the light kills sin. You will not be able to defeat sin that you keep in secret on your own. It will only grow and its tentacles will wrap around you more tightly. But when that sin is brought into the light, it dies quickly by God's spirit and his power and through his word. Don't keep that hidden. Confess, turn, change, and pursue the Lord. And times of refreshing, the scripture says, will come to you where? From the presence of the Lord himself. Prayer filled with adoration, confession, and repentance. Finally this, petition. It's not wrong to ask God for stuff. It isn't. Look with me here in the following verses. Verse 16 and following. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, oh God, out of all his troubles. The elements we've looked at this morning, adoration, confession, pardon me, repentance, and finally this petition. It is not wrong to bring requests before the Lord. Both personal and corporate requests are good and God actually commands us to bring those things before him. But I would say that if our prayers begin with adoration, and are filled with times of confession and repentance, those things that we are bringing before the Lord will be the right things. Our minds and our hearts will be focused at that point to ask things that are within the will of God. But if we haven't begun by considering who he is, And then considering who we are in light of him and his holiness and majesty and power. And recognizing that apart from him and apart from Christ in particular, we have no hope and no right to be in his presence. We might be asking for things perhaps that aren't necessary. But when our hearts and our minds are focused... I believe that that which we bring before the Lord will be that which we should bring before the Lord. And so please hear this morning, the scripture does tell us to ask and you will receive. You don't have because you haven't asked. The scripture tells us to be persistent in that asking. And perhaps you faced a time of discouragement in your own life thinking that maybe God doesn't answer the prayers that I bring before him. 
And I hope that I would encourage you this morning by letting you know that God always answers prayer. For those that draw near to him in Christ, God always answers your prayers in one of three ways. He will either say yes, he will say no, or he'll say wait. But God will always answer your prayer if it is prayed in and through the finished work of Christ. Adoration, confession, repentance, petition. If you've been struggling with prayer in your own life, begin there. If you struggle for words of adoration, I don't know what to say to God. Look to the scriptures, look to the book of Psalms in particular. It is an entire book of adoring speech that you can pray to the Lord. Lord, you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, faithful from generation to generation, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. I didn't come up with any of that on my own this morning. That's all found within the book of Psalms. We begin with adoration. God, help us to get to the place where we say the same thing about our sin that God does in confession. And by his grace and the power of his spirit working in us, we choose to turn from sin, change our minds about sin in repentance, and ask because God loves to give good things to his children. We bring our petitions before the Lord. I trust that God will grow us all in a spirit of prayer. God desires us to grow in that spirit of prayer as his children. And I trust, based on the authority of his word, that he will do that in us this morning by the power of his spirit. As we pursue godliness to the praise of his glorious grace, would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for being a God who we can pray to this morning and you hear us. We thank you, God, for being a God who is sovereign over all the affairs of the universe that you have made. And while the present state of our country and the world might cause us a great amount of distress and uncertainty, we know, Father, that you are on the throne. Lord, that you have a plan from before the foundation of the world to bring all things together under the authority of Christ Jesus, making his enemies a footstool for his feet. And so, Father, we trust in your sovereignty. We trust in your goodness. We trust in your plan, even when our eyes cannot see it. Lord, help us to be people that desire to grow in Christ-likeness, saying no to sin and yes to holiness for the praise of your glorious grace. And for those who are here today, I pray, Father, that by your spirit, you would encourage them in prayer. If it's been something tiresome for them, Lord, would you encourage their hearts? Lord, if it's something that has been a great treasure and privilege, Father, would you continue to grow that all the more? We thank you for your word. We thank you for the finished work of Christ in our place. For it's in the name of Jesus that we do pray and trust that you have heard us because of that. 
Amen.